Please turn with me to Acts chapter 20, and we want to continue this very short break from studying Paul's letter to the Romans uh, by looking at Acts chapter 20 and continuing to think and, and get ourselves all on the same page with respect to this process of the nomination and confirmation, election of officers in this church. So read with me at verse 17 of Acts chapter 20. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. And how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day, that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So be careful, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, please do help us as we come to this, your word, and as we seek to be shaped by it. Uh, Please, Lord, may it not just land on our eardrums or reside in our brains, but but may, by your Spirit, it move down into the deep recesses of our hearts and souls and do its marvelous and magical and mysterious work, this work of changing us. Do this, Jesus, as you stand in our midst. Take your word and work it into our souls, we ask in your name. Amen may be seated. One of, uh, one of the really great and um, 
and really enticing images from my very limited, admittedly very limited exposure uh, to and with good literature is this, is this image of, of Lucy. Oh, no, 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 not that Lucy. No, 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 no. Lucy from, uh, from the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, this image of Lucy making her way for the first time through the wardrobe, and when she gets on the other side of the wardrobe, she, she's, for the first time, she's in Narnia. She's in a different place. And it's this, it's this magical place. It's this, it's this wonderful, mysterious place. Um, but it's also this sad place, and it's a sad place because as, as it's put at some point in those first few pages of uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it's always winter, but Christmas never comes. And the reason Christmas never comes is because the White Witch has frozen Narnia. And so Narnia is, is frozen and under her spell. But you know, most of you, many of you, the, the rest of the story. And of course, the rest of the story is that Aslan is on the move. Aslan is on the move, right? And as Aslan is on the move, things begin to thaw, right? And the whole trajectory of the story is that while the white witch possesses a magic, Aslan possesses a deeper magic. And it's through that deeper magic, and, and you know the story, and so you know that the deeper magic is a death and a resurrection. And through that death and that resurrection, the spell of the white witch is broken, and the thaw comes to Narnia. And while up to that point, it's always been winter, but Christmas never comes now, and this isn't Lewis's language, this is my language, now Christmas comes to stay. The reason it's such a compelling image to me is because, because something like that happens. What happened to Lucy, something like that, it's just a wonderful image, Something like that happens to every person who becomes a Christian. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 1.13. He says, in effect, by God's grace, you have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. You've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and you've been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. You've walked through the wardrobe. You've, you've passed, right? From war-ravaged London, you've passed from that world into this new world, this different place where Aslan is on the move, where the king is reasserting his rightful reign, and where by his death and resurrection... He has fractured and broken the power of the white witch. And now everything, everything is being renewed. That's who you are as a Christian. That's what's true of you. You know, I, okay, not here to pick a fight. Love where I live. Love that I get to live in this place. But, you know, there are some things, 
that are problematic about our culture. And one of them is this sort of rapid, rabid individualism that just sort of permeates the whole culture. It's like, it's me, it's me, it's me, it's me, it's me. And our understanding of the gospel starts to pivot on that. And we think so often of Christianity in terms of me and Jesus, and and I accepted Jesus, and I received Jesus, and that is true. But do you know, do you remember? If you didn't know, I'm going to tell you. If you've forgotten, I'm going to remind you that over 150 times in Paul's letters and other places, the language that is used is not the language of Jesus being in you, but of you being in Jesus. You are in Him. You are in the Beloved. You are in Christ Jesus. You are in Jesus Christ. You are in Christ. You are in Jesus. That's the language, you see. It's the language which describes this severing of an old union and the establishing of a new union. If anyone is in Christ, old things have passed away. Boom! New things have come. Anyone is in Christ, new creation. That's what you're a part of. Now, I spent all that time last week sort of underscoring this and stressing this because the implication of this is when I pass by God's grace through the wardrobe into this new land, into this new realm where Aslan is on the move, where the king is reasserting his rightful role as the Lord of the realm. And I become a citizen in that kingdom. I am under that authority. I am under the rule, the gracious, compassionate, loving, opulent, overflowing, gracious rule and reign of King Jesus. Right? Luke 12. 32, don't be afraid, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I live my life as a citizen of this new kingdom under the rule and reign of Jesus, this King. And as I live my life under the gracious rule of Jesus, the King, the voice among all of the voices that scream at me to be heard, the voice among all of the voices that demand my attention, the voice that matters to me is the voice of Jesus. The word that matters is the word of the King. So much of what the Reformation was about was simply about the business of seeking to reform and restore the church according to what Jesus said about the church. And what Jesus, as a gracious, ruling, reigning, powerful king who is on the move, reasserting his rightful rule and reign, what Jesus says the church is and should be. And so, and I've said this before, and it's challenging, it's hard, I don't pretend that it's easy. When I step across that threshold, 
and come into this place, this place where God's people gather for corporate worship with Jesus the King, not off in the distance someplace, but firmly planted, firmly fixed in the midst of the assembly, on the other side of the veil, unseen to us, but nevertheless present. When I come into this space, I have to do my dead level best to check those other voices at the door. And listen for the voice of the king as the voice of the king comes to me in his word and through his word and crazy as it seems in the crazy business of the preaching of his word. That's the defining voice. That's the true voice. That's the authoritative voice. That's that's the voice that never speaks anything untrue. We've affirmed it in what we've said about the Word of God this morning. And I listen to that voice and I believe that voice because that voice can be trusted. So having said that, now I've just got a little bit of time to race through some very, very important things Related to this whole business of the nomination, confirmation, election, confirmation slash election as we talked about last week of officers in this church. And there's so much that could be said and that needs to be said. I'm just, I'm getting down from 30,000 feet to try to paint some specific strokes of the brush on this canvas. And there's an opportunity for you tonight to come out and we'll continue to talk about this process if you have questions about it. But here's what I want to offer us as a guide for thinking as we're in this process. Three words, if you will. First, a word about purpose, the purpose of elders and deacons. Second, a word about process, the process by which we get elders and deacons. And third, a word about the person or the persons who fill these offices. A word about purpose, a word about process, and a word about purpose, uh, the person. First, purpose. I want us to look uh, briefly at three passages, one of which we've read, the other two of which I simply want us to refer to very quickly, to get at what the purpose is in establishing these offices, both of these offices, the office of elder and the office of deacon. I want you to look first at Acts chapter 6, the first seven verses. And I'm going to tell you this story rather than read the passage. The situation is this. The gospel is proliferating. It's expanding. What Jesus said was going to happen is happening. He's poured out his spirit upon the church. Peter and the others are preaching, proclaiming the gospel of forgiveness and freedom in Jesus. And people are responding. People will ask me sometimes, how come the Jews didn't believe? Well, in point of fact, they did. (laughs) They did. Thousands of them believed as Peter preached the gospel and folks responded. And when people respond to the gospel and the church begins to grow, what happens? Needs come with the growth of the church. And that's what happens in Acts chapter 6. And the particular need that appears in Acts chapter 6 is the care of widows and particularly widows who are from a Hellenistic or Greek 
culture as over against those widows who were a part of the indigenous and local, more Hebrew culture. And we know how this stuff goes, right? We've got the pedigree. We're good Jews. These over here are half-breeds. They're half-breeds. Well, the church says that's poppycock and nonsense and so much rubbish. The whole point of the gospel One of the points of the gospel is that all of those kinds of divisions, things that formerly separated human beings, have been broken down. And so the church rightly responds as as it sees these Hellenistic widows who need to be cared for. The church rightly responds to that need. But notice how they respond. This is verse 2. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said... It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve, to serve, the Greek verb there is the word from which we get our word deacon and the noun diakonos. It is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Here's the point. There are, and in the experience of of those of you who have served as deacons or elders in Presbyterian churches, There are many things that deacons will do. There are many things that elders will do. But what is at the heart and core and center of the ministry of elders, meaning pastors, which we refer to as teaching elders, and ruling elders, those laymen who are called to this position, and confirmed in this position by congregations, what is at the heart of that, their responsibility, is the business of heralding, proclaiming the word of God, and committing themselves to prayer. Those are the central functions. In Acts chapter 6, they are apostolic functions, assumed by the apostles. In our understanding of the the growth of the church, when the last apostle died, the apostolic office, meaning the specific office of apostle, capital A, died with the death of the last apostle. But apostolic functions did not die. And those apostolic functions, the business of preaching and heralding the word of God and praying, Devoting yourself to those things. Those apostolic functions devolve now in our understanding of biblical church government, devolve now upon elders. And the office of the diaconate is established in order to ensure that that central function, that central matter, those apostolic functions are not in any way compromised. Okay? That's the basic purpose of the establishing of these offices. It is to preserve, to safeguard, to ensure that the Word of God, 
proclaimed and heralded in the midst of the people of God and the ministry of prayer is not in any way compromised. Acts chapter 14, verses 21 to 23. Real quick look at this. Verse 21, when they, Paul and Barnabas, had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is Paul and Barnabas returning to those cities and towns where they had preached the gospel, the text telling us to strengthen the disciples and to encourage them to continue in the faith, to persevere in the faith. Now, faith is understood in in a couple of ways. It's understood um, as a sort of an objective thing, a propositional thing, certain doctrines and truths. And it's understood in the scriptures to be that act of trust by which a person entrusts himself or herself to the God of the gospel. It seems that what Luke is telling us here is that Paul and Barnabas returned to these towns to encourage these disciples, not so much in the subjective exercise of faith, but encouraging them to persist in their adherence to, their subscription to, their embracing of the doctrine, the teaching, the faith that they had received. Is there a subjective in trusting yourself? Of course there is. But the focus here is upon encouraging these young disciples that they not wander off from this faith, that they persevere in it, And notice the next thing that is done. As Paul and Barnabas, having encouraged the disciples, strengthening the disciples, then leave these towns and villages, they appoint elders in these places. Why? So that the elders can continue to encourage and strengthen the disciples in this gospel they receive. You see, what stands at the center, just as in Acts chapter 6, what stands at the center, it seems to me, in Acts chapter 14, is Paul and Barnabas' resolve and determination, and subsequently the elders' resolve and determination to preserve the integrity of the gospel that has been preached and to encourage people to persevere in it. And then you come to Acts chapter 20, this lengthy passage Um, that we've read, where Paul calls the elders to himself from Ephesus and gathers them before he goes off to Jerusalem to meet with him. Elders uh, who have have known him with whom he has been from house to house, he says. He calls these elders who are dear friends, and you know they're dear friends because later in the passage when Paul says that he's leaving and he gets on the ship to go away, they fall upon his neck and hug him and kiss him with tears at the prospect that they would never see him again. 
These men loved each other. They loved each other. They were the band of brothers. Big B band. Big B brothers. And Paul calls these elders to himself. And as he calls them, notice, just notice in the passage, as they, as they come together, there are three terms, two terms and an image that are used to describe them. They are called elders in verse 17. In verse 28a, the first half of this verse, Paul says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's the image, the word elder, the image of a flock with shepherds or pastors. And then the third word is in, or second word is in verse, uh, the second half of verse 28, over whom, um, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. And that is the word episkopos, or bishop, from which we get our word episcopal. It is a word that has connotations of ruling and governing. But you take all of those three things together, the elder, which is a picture from the Old Testament, taken from the Old Testament, of someone who is wise and who is mature, who is discerning of the ways of God and the person of God and the purposes of God, together with the shepherd, the shepherd whose purpose is to protect and defend the flock, the purpose of of whom is is to lead the flock and to feed the flock and to water the flock, and then the bishop or the episkopos, the the person who is given oversight with respect to the flock. You take all of those images, you roll it into one picture, and you have the office of elder. Glenn, you ready to quit? Zach, you ready to quit? Mike, you ready to quit? You see the picture that's being painted for us? And who, who who is the elder, capital E? Who is the shepherd, capital S? Who is the bishop and overseer of your souls? Jesus. What are we called upon to do? Emulate Him. Emulate Him. The one who is the Word of God. Who is the shepherd of His sheep. Who is the bishop of our souls. The one who is supremely wise and discerning of the ways of God and the purposes of God. I don't want that job. I don't want that job, friends. You understand what I'm saying? I want it and I love it, but when the picture of it begins to emerge, it is daunting and overwhelming. Daunting and overwhelming. That's the picture that emerges. And what is at the center of it, let me point this out to you in this passage as well, What is at the center of it? If you look at verse 20 of Acts chapter 20, Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Teaching, declaring anything that was profitable. Verses 26 and 27. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of you all, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I didn't shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. 
Folks, there are so many little details of the whole counsel of God which may seem irrelevant or unimportant. Details of the whole counsel of God which may be confrontational and challenging. Details of the whole counsel of God which may produce tensions and, and, and opposition and people reluctant to embrace those things. If you're a Baptist, you don't like that we baptize babies. It's a part of the whole counsel of God. We teach these things, election, predestination. Are they hard to understand? Absolutely. Are they hard to get over? Am I free to avoid and neglect them? Absolutely not. The sovereignty of God over the whole of everything that he has made and God ordaining whatsoever comes to pass, working all things after the counsel of his own will, Ephesians 1 to 11. You think that's easy to preach and teach? It's not. But Paul says he withheld nothing that was profitable for those who were his hearers. He said he was innocent of the blood of all men because he did not withhold any element or aspect of the whole counsel of God. What is it that elders are responsible for? Ensuring, ensuring that the whole counsel of God is understood in discerning ways, ensuring that that whole counsel of God is upheld. Why? Because it preserves God's people. It shepherds the flock. It feeds the sheep. It waters the lambs. It is the whole counsel of God, not just the appetizers, not just the desserts, not just the leg of lamb, but everything across the whole of the banqueting table of the Word of God from Genesis to Maps. The whole thing. And that is what elders are charged with preserving and protecting and heralding and proclaiming. Why? Because in doing that, they're preserving and keeping and feeding and leading and shepherding the flock of God under their care. Look, there are folks... I am one of them. There are folks, I say this with all due respect, I want to say it graciously, but I want to say that there are people in this congregation worshiping here today. Because teaching elders and ruling elders in other places have lost sight of what is their central and fundamental responsibility, the thing which defines the church, makes the church to be the church, and that is the word of God in the midst of the people. And when the whole counsel of God is lost, the gospel is lost, and when the gospel is lost, the church is no longer the church. Say it graciously, but obviously with conviction. What is it that we are charged with? We will do many things. Deacons will do many things. But the thing that we are charged with together is the preservation of the integrity of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the whole counsel of God in the midst of the people. And that is the particular responsibility wed to this hard, hard business of praying for you that stand at the center of my pastoral office and of the office of ruling elder in the life of this church. And deacons, 
Again, as you look at Acts chapter 6, deacons were together with us addressing needs. In Acts chapter 6, it's primarily mercy kinds of needs, but not, those are not the only kinds of needs. Addressing needs, meeting needs, marshalling the resources of the church in such a way that needs are met, but not, not, so that the gospel of God in the midst of his people is in any way marginalized or compromised. Folks, this is really important. There is, I can't begin to tell you how much pressure there is in the church culture being exerted upon me to be a chief operating officer, a chief executive officer, a chief financial officer to be a vision caster, a manager, an executor, an administrator. I've said this more times than I can recall. I did not come into the ministry to run an institution. I came into the ministry because the gospel of Jesus Christ changed my life. And that gospel is the only hope that this church has or that any human being has. And to ask me or to ask ruling elders to be a bunch of things which are needful things and necessary things, but which are not at the core of this office, is to marginalize your health and well-being. So why are these offices here? To preserve the integrity, the integrity of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of his people. Okay, this, I just have to do this quick, please come tonight so we can talk more about it. Todd, this is, this is the purpose. What's the process? I just want to point out to you in Acts 14, verse 23, Paul and Barnabas appoint elders for the churches. Okay, this is about process now. We've talked about purpose. This is about process. Paul and Barnabas appoint elders for the churches. Back in Acts chapter 6, the apostles come to the brethren, to all of the brethren, and say, we've got this need. What are we, how are we going to fix it? And they look to the brethren, and they say, identify those who are full of the Holy Spirit, spiritually discerning, wise, godly men, and we will appoint them to this task. We will appoint them to this task. And so they brought those men to the apostles, and the apostles laid hands upon them and ordained them to that task. In Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Titus is similarly charged with ordaining or appointing elders. Here's the point. This is where, this is, this is again where our, our, and I don't mean to offend democratic sensibilities here, but, but this is where we have to understand that ecclesiastical authority, ecclesiastical responsibility comes from Jesus to those whom he has appointed to serve as elder, shepherd, overseer of the church of Jesus Christ. And so it is Paul, yes, an apostle, but then Titus, who is not an apostle, who isn't even called a bishop, but clearly has responsibility on Crete for the business of providing oversight to the churches in Crete, appointing elders in those churches. 
This is just my way. This is the way of illustrating the point that I made last week. The government of the church of Jesus Christ is government in Christ, by Christ, and for the glory of Christ and the good of his people. It is not government of the people, by the people, and for the people. That's democratic. That's wonderful. I'm glad I live in that place. But in the church of Jesus Christ, government is of Jesus Christ, from Jesus Christ, and for Jesus Christ and his glory, and because Jesus is in charge, you can be sure that everything he does is for the good of his people. And that government of Jesus Christ flows from him to Paul and Barnabas, from Paul and Barnabas to those whom they appoint as elders in the churches, to Titus, who is similarly charged with this responsibility. So how does this work itself out in our form of government? Again, quick, 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 quick. Before this church became what we call a particular church, it was a mission of the presbytery, which meant that it did not have elders. It was under the oversight of the presbytery. The presbytery had responsibility for it. And before it became what we refer to as a particular church with an initial group of elders, those elder candidates had to be examined by the presbytery, you see, by those who possessed the ecclesiastical responsibility, ecclesiastical authority, which comes to them from Christ through his church. And so then, those elders... Zach and Glenn, having been examined by the presbytery, having sustained those examinations in their Christian experience, their understanding of the theology of the Bible, their understanding of the government of the church, those elders then have that responsibility conferred upon them for this local church. And so what we have then is a process that works like this. Names are suggested from the congregation, presumably along the lines of what happened in Acts chapter 6, and those names are reviewed and they are approved by whom? By those whom Christ has charged with responsibility for approving them, according, according to those standards that he establishes in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus. Those names that are received are reviewed and approved as they are passed through that grid. And then just as apostles approved and appointed those first deacons to that work and then ordained them, the elders then entrusted with this ecclesiastical responsibility put the names of those who have been approved for final confirmation to the, con to the congregation. That's how the process works. In keeping, again, with seeking to understand principles of biblical government, biblical church government. So that's the process. And again, feel free to ask about it tonight. But I, I, I and again, I'm not here to pick a fight. I just, I want us to be disabused of, of these unhelpful democratic notions that government resides among the people. It doesn't. It resides with Jesus the King who is in the midst of his church working out his good purposes. 
And in the midst of working out his good purposes, he is calling and preparing and raising up those who would serve him in these two capacities, elder and deacon, in order that the integrity of the gospel might be preserved. And here's the third thing, very quickly, just a quick note about the person. I can't unpack the whole of 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 13. Read it, read those verses, but I want to make two observations. This one first. I want you to notice in verse 8, when Paul shifts from talking about elders to talking about deacons, he connects those two groups with the word likewise. Likewise. Now, this is another notion. If I could get into into our brains with a scrub brush, I'd scrub this notion out of our heads. There seems to be in our minds this notion that deacons are some sort of inferior class of people, some sort of second-class officer in the life of the church. I challenge you to read what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus, what Luke says in Acts chapter 6 about the spiritual character, the qualifications that are required of these officers. My friends, and I hope I don't need to say this to you deacons, Concerning character, spirituality, faithfulness to Christ, there is not one whit of difference. The difference is a difference of function in the life of the church, not of spiritual maturity, not of godliness, not of wisdom, not of discernment. Please, please resist this notion that deacons are somehow junior guys, second-class people. They are not. And I will just tell you, and I don't have time to elaborate this. It's way too late now. I don't have time to elaborate this. Is this whole thing in place perfectly? No. Will it ever be? No. But I tell you, folks, I am resolved to build a session and a diaconate and to build the relationships between those two groups in such a way as to have a seamless unity between them with the distinct functions clearly in evidence in the life of our church. And we're getting there. We're getting there. But my point here is just this. Deacons are not second-class citizens Both are called to serve. And what is true of them and what is true of each of us, and I'll conclude with this, I hope we understand that wherever we are called to serve, it is an honor to serve this king. It is an honor wherever I am called to serve this King of glory as he is on the move, pressing his rightful rule and reign out into the world, leading all of history to the grand conclusion when he will be exalted as King of kings and Lord of lords. It is an honor to serve.
Let's pray together, and please do come tonight. Lord Jesus, help us always in this church to keep the first thing the first thing, to keep at the center what is supposed to be at the center, and give us grace, each one, to serve you well in this place, to the praise of your own great name, for the praise of your glorious grace. We ask in your name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing hymn number 98.